0: Lindsay Luttrell, and this is Table 5. As always, thank you for coming back for a listen. For my next restaurant recommendation, I have been thinking a lot about my favorite little gym in New Orleans. With spring upon us, it's heating up, summer's coming up, I always think of this place. It is Bacchanal in the Bywater in New Orleans. It's one of my favorite places. If you know me, you know that New Orleans is one of my favorite cities. Always has been. I grew up going there. A lot of my best friends from college are from there. It's still one of my favorite places to visit. Bacchanal is like the dream location. It's a little cheese shop, a little wine shop, a little restaurant, a little outdoor dining, a little outdoor music. You can go daytime, you can go nighttime, stroll down there with your child, go with girlfriends, go on a date. It's just my favorite little place and I love it so much. Every time I'm in New Orleans, I go, and I'm so jealous of all of my friends who live in New Orleans and can just be at Bacchanal any time they'd like. It just, it's such a special place, and it's like salt of the earth. Like, you just go, everyone's nice, there's live music, so you just cannot be in a bad mood. So yeah, if you're there, you know about it. If you're visiting, check it out. It's always the top of my list. Bacchanal, I cannot wait to come see you again. Okay, on to my next guest. He is a food historian, a travel author, a TV personality, and once upon a time, a wannabe minister. He is a middle child like me. He is married to the love of his life, who is just adorable. You can catch him on Food Network, either judging culinary competitions or being a floor commentator on Tournament of Champions. He is a true joy and just the most knowledgeable. It is wild listening to this man and everything that he knows. This podcast was so fun, which you can tell because Susan, who is my friend, editor, producer of the pod, she's kind of my barometer. So when I look over and she's laughing or smiling or having a good time, I'm like, oh, this is going well. So you may hear her in the pod, and that's just because we were having the best time. He has a couple of books out and a podcast, Eat My Globe. He is a true fascinating man. So please enjoy my next episode with Simon Majumdar. We're talking about your culinary journey, obviously, but throughout that, all your personal own experiences, Wrapped in between.
1: You tell me what you need. Yeah, and I'll keep on talking. Yeah, I
0: just like want to hear all of it, you know. And if you're ever like that's off limits, just be like that's off limits. Oh, yeah. But I don't think I know your secrets to, I do, I, to bring
1: anything up. I don't think I have many secrets, but
0: <laughs> um yeah. So I was curious because I do know just like some basics. You born in London? but No,
1: no, no, no. Oh, no, no. Born in England. Born in England. Uh, Bengali father, so from Calcutta, Welsh mother. Uh, father was a surgeon, mother was a nurse. Oh my god! They met in Wales in 1950, blah blah, 58. Uh, <laughs> mixed uh, mixed marriage, very unusual in those yeah. days. Yeah. Um, but. Luckily for everyone, my Welsh grandparents absolutely adored him, so that was all fine.
0: So was it weird for anyone?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, when they were young and when they were first married and he was, he could never get a job with the British National Health Service in kind of any of the nice areas because that wasn't done because they didn't want a gentleman who was very dark being there and they didn't approve of the mixed marriage. So they ended up going up to Scotland. They ended up going, why we ended up in the little town that we were in, which is like some kind of small town outside of a bigger town in Sheffield. And it was in those days, in the 50s, that's where they would have signs on things going, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, on on properties. So, no, I mean, it's just, you can't even, I mean, unfortunately, we see enough of it now. Yeah. There, it was much more open. And uh, so, yeah, so they traveled around. They moved about 30, 40 times when I was a kid. We finally ended up in this town called Rotherham, which is like a mine and steel town.
0: So uh, you moved along with them that many times?
1: Many, well, quite a few times. I mean, I was very young at the time, so I don't remember a lot of it. So I still remember being at my kind of in my very baby years in Rotherham. But it's outside Sheffield, which is like the Pittsburgh of England. Steel, right. steel and mines.
0: Oh, my God. It's a very
1: blue collar. But my dad did very, very well and became like the consultant surgeon and all of this. So they ended up, you know, doing very well. And,
0: and do you have siblings?
1: Yeah, I have two brothers and a sister. So Oh, so uh,
0: you're one of four. Yeah. Where do you fall in the line?
1: Uh, middle, oh, always, That's, which is why I'm so kind of repressed <laughs> and unhappy.
0: Wait, okay, I'm thrilled to hear that you're a middle of four because I'm going to settle this debate. I am one of four. I have an older sister, and then I have a twin sister okay, who I'm one minute older than, and then I have a little brother. And I always say I'm the middle child because I'm technically the second born, But my whole life, my brother wasn't born until we were much older. We were 12 and 14. And Lauren, my my twin sister, was the baby. And she still is the baby even though she's married (laughs) with kids. And so my mom's always like, oh, you swear you're a middle child. Poor Lindsay the middle child. But I'm like, that's middle. It
1: does make a big difference. I have an older brother. it's hard to even think about it now because my older brother's like 62 so of course um we're talking about different age but we're still exactly the same as we were when we were like eight or nine i mean we're identical and in fact we if you look at our WhatsApp or whatever it is we use now signal every single day i mean literally every single day we're sending each other pictures of the food we made or the restaurants we've been to all the time with food i mean constantly so i have an older brother who when we were young was a I mean he's he's very generous and he's a very nice chap and has done very well for himself, but when I was younger he he was basically he was a he was a bully he was an older brother oh well, yeah, and I still remember one day I wrote about it in my first book he was my parents had gone out and he'd been put in charge because he was about three years older uh, than my sister and five years older than me and um He declared himself to be God of the house and sat up on a chair. I still remember this, with like a curtain around him and a broom as his setup. Oh, my gosh. And we all had to crawl along the floor and worship him. I still remember this. I was like three or four, and... um, I still remember it was br- brilliant and he, he declared himself <laughs> to be brilliant. and it was always it was always food. So he declared himself to be the great salami. <laughs> so we had to crawl along the floor going, oh, salami, oh, salami. And even now he's going in our family as the salami. What
0: an interesting name to give yourself. <laughs> he, gave it,
1: he was the great salami at the age of whatever he was, 12 or something. Has
0: that name followed him through oh, life? yeah, We
1: still call him the great <laughs> salami. In our family, oh. and my, my younger brother now is what three years younger than me, so he's in his 50s. So, I mean, we're you know, we're knocking on a bit, but we're still very much the same. And I haven't seen them, they're they my brother's in London, uh, my and my sister and my uh, younger brother are in the north in Rotherham. Oh, where we were, oh so
0: where you're like, we're raised,
1: yeah. So, well, oh, wow. he's he's we've just sold the big house. Ha- my father died three years ago, and my mother, quite a few years before oh. that. So, we finally sold this huge house we had. I mean, it was a big, big kind of six bedroom house. Yeah. I don't even can't remember how many houses, uh, rooms it had bedrooms, but it was one of those great old Victorian houses. Oh, we finally beautiful. sold it because there was no point having it. So that's gone to another family who hopefully are enjoying it. Yeah. And he moved into another, uh, my younger brother moved into a nice apartment down there. And my sister has her family. She's got the only kids uh, there. Oh, uh, so
0: all three boys, no kids, no sister kids. has kids. And so you're an got,
1: uncle. I'm, I'm an uncle. And they're, in fact, my younger my niece is very, very, very brilliant. She's called Bieber, and she's become like oh. very smart. And my nephew has—he's has, like twenty-one or twenty-two now. He's become like one of the top DJs in England, and he's currently running around. Oh, Europe, wild! Europe and become—he's called Ninety Six Back. I have no idea. I listen to his music, and I. I, I'm not claiming to understand it, but he's very, very talented. So I'm very proud of him.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: So yeah, they're a lovely family. But uh, I haven't seen them obviously for three years because I've been stuck here. But we've already right. we've booked our journey for August or something. Oh my god! And then I get to go back for however many days. I can go back without paying tax again. Yeah. <laughs> and then I come back. <laughs> but so yeah, it's an interesting family.
0: That's so cool. I love how I mean, just now you were saying we're knocking on. What does that mean? Like you're getting older?
1: Knocking on, yeah. Knocking on means we're knocking on heaven's gate, you know. So we're oh,
0: knocking on.
1: Knocking on heaven's gate. That's a very British thing. When you say oh, someone's knocking on, it means they're getting old.
0: I love all the sayings. I don't know what it is about a British accent It makes me <laughs> feel like I should imitate it, which I then do poorly and embarrass ne- us no, you all. You should
1: never do. Oh my gosh. I mean, I never do an American accent because I can't, and it would be very offensive. Well,
0: no, it's awful. My older sister and I will, for whatever reason, we've always been like. <laughs> talk to you later and just see each other and like it's the weirdest thing it's i don't know watching, why we do it
1: if you've been watching absolutely fabulous or something my, well, my wife does it when she watches what's the one she watches downton abbey downton and abbey. then for about a day afterwards she's trying she's talking british to me
0: yeah that is so funny well i won't ever do that thank
1: you thank you for that <laughs>
0: um and so tell me so mom was welsh dad was indian what was that like for you i mean you're saying other people had an issue with it but did did you ever have issues as a oh, child yeah. with yeah. that? Oh, yeah.
1: I, was, I mean, you know, because I was neither... I, I'm writing about this right now, in fact. Uh, oh, cool. Someone, um, kind of neither one thing nor the other. So I wasn't Indian enough to be Indian because I don't speak Bengali, um, don't speak Hindi. And I wasn't white enough to be British So in a very in a very kind of white town. Right. Because there weren't... There were a few the people from India there. But I was, you know, bullied at school and all the usual things that happened. But also... I was bullied at school because I was a complete asshole and I deserved a lot of the stuff that I got to, which is just the reality of it, you know. So Well, you I were re- having
0: to compete with the king of salami or <laughs> well,
1: my, well also it didn't help that my, my sister was completely brilliant. I mean she's a fellow of the university and she's incredibly smart. And oh wow. I'm very much not, I can get by using the accent, but I don't <laughs> I don't really have much when it comes to compared to my sister and my older brother who were incredibly smart. Um But, yeah, so, no, I mean, I got bullied at school and all of that, and I wanted, as soon as I got the chance to leave Rotherham, I came down to London. And in London, of course, it was very different when I came down to university because it was London. Um, So, yeah, so I, um, I did have, yeah, but where it was fascinating was that our family was very kind of diverse in a big sense of way. My mother was very, very conservative. My father was very socialist.
2: Oh wow. I
1: mean, very socialist he came from India and and it was like Indian Cal- Calcutta at the time was communist still is communist and um so he was very socialist and very yeah. support you know was all about supporting the miners and all the time during Maggie Thatcher my mother was all about having them all strapped in the you know in the town square or sure. something. So it was interesting having those conversations but you know, they got out, oh, they were married for 50 something years or something. Yeah. Um and then so at home it was also fascinating from a food point of view because my mother was a great kind of Welsh baker, which is yeah. what the Welsh do very well. You know, cakes and biscuits and all that kind of yeah,
0: stuff. Yeah, what is like Welsh food? Like, Welsh is food that?
1: is very, very simple, um, very much based on ingredients. So a lot of it was kind of feeding the people, feeding the people who were in the mines, or mm-hmm. particularly mining is associated with Wales coal mining. And so uh, and they traveled all over the world, Welsh miners. If you go to Argentina, there's actually a place in Patagonia. Where there's an entire town that's full of Welsh people, and they they will speak Spanish, but they've all got Welsh names. They were oh, cool. Welsh miners who came over there. But if you go to um, if you go to where am I thinking of Boise? If you go to some of those towns in Montana, lots of the towns have a lot of Welsh people there because they came over once them you know, to mine yeah. here when you didn't have people here to mine. Anyway, so it's a fantastic thing from the Welsh point of view, but I don't speak Welsh, uh, and from an Indian point of view, obviously I got my passion for Indian food. And my mother, uh, interestingly enough, was a huge uh, and ta- hugely talented, rather, uh, chef of Indian food. Uh, because even. of your dad? Or well, she always because was. when when they first got married, they went to, back to India. Oh. And the plan was for my father to run my uh, grandfather's uh, medical practice, which was a huge, big medical practice. In, right. in, very successful. But they didn't get on. So he came back to England or, and then ended up in where we did. So, but my mum, when she was there, you know, women weren't allowed to work, so they were in this very wealthy household in India. Particularly in those days, you were either very, very wealthy, or you were on the streets. Almost, right. I mean, not quite, but pretty much. It's, they have some middle class now, but she was basically, you know, with hundreds of servants and in these houses where oh she just God. all she could do was stand in the kitchen. Nineteen twenty-one year old Rush right. lady suddenly standing in the kitchens with hundreds of servants running around after learning how to cook Bengali food because that's all that would keep her kind of from going nuts
0: did she hate that that was I I don't think she
1: liked it I think she enjoyed the cooking side and I think she loved uh, that and I think she kind of liked for a while the being looked after I mean it is one of those where you you kind of I remember spending time there in the 70s and you turn around and go to some poor chap there you go can I have x and two seconds later it just appears and you're eight years old and so people can lead a very spoiled life and i don't think they wanted us to be part of that well i wasn't even born at that point um so yeah she learned uh, how to cook bengali food incredibly well and the way they used to explain it when i in my family in calcutta they used to say that she was reincarnated from a bengali because that's the only way you could ever cook and she was she was exceptional wow Uh, So So you grew up eating both. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I loved it. And uh, so from that point of view, you know, I was one of those who would go into school with, you know, Indian food in a little bag or whatever, and find and people find it very kind of weird because they hadn't seen a lot of it. We were talking early seventies. Yeah. You know, I'm 58 now, so we were talking early seventies. People hadn't really seen this kind of stuff.
0: Growing up you're obviously you're you're saying that you're you had the Indian influence and the Welsh influence in the kitchen. Did you know that you were into food at that time, or that oh, just was something you were privy to?
1: No, our, our entire family was obsessed. Even now, like I said, we still my father, God bless him when he died three years ago, even to you know a few weeks before he died, he's still sending us pictures of his food. Oh, I love that. He's still my mother was sent we were constantly. That's our way of communicating so food has always been number one
2: sure
1: so it is you know so you can actually say it and i still do it i was talking to my sous chef who helps me in some events that i do today and i said oh we were up do you remember we were doing this event at this place and he goes no and i said oh you do we had we ate this with this and this and he goes oh now i remember so food is the way that i kind of signify where i am or where we were and, and the place and this is how our family do it so we'll go do you remember x And we go, no, and we're talking about a meal in 1970-something. And we go, oh, you do. We had this. And we go, I know exactly what you mean. So our family was absolutely using food as a prism for us talking to each other. And it was always where are we going to eat? What are we going to cook? What are we going to do? And food and drink, whether it's great wines, great. So it's always been an obsession. Yeah. Yeah. even though I went on to do lots of other things before I came kind of came into Yeah,
0: school. I feel like your career has like had nine lives. I would
1: say, well, it's <laughs> because
0: you went to London was that when you were in publishing?
1: No, well I went to London oddly enough and this is one that I t- people don't always know is that I went to London to study theology to be an Anglican priest and an uh, Episcopalian. So I have a degree what? I have a degree in theology.
0: Simon, you're blowing my mind right now. I feel like I knew about all of your like different career paths, but this is not one that I knew.
1: No, no. I was constantly um, uh, kind of from up until about the age of 20-something when I went down to do theology. I went down and, um, what was I, I? Yeah, King's College London uh, to study divinity, so I'm a Bachelor of Divinity.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And I you know, did quite well. But then the, the church and I kind of mutually agreed that I wasn't going to be a priest. And so I had to decide what to do. So I ended up getting a job. This is 1985 or whatever it was. I had nothing, you know, if you study theology, it's not much good for anything but theology. Right. Being a, being a priest, much as I enjoyed it. And so I came back and through, I think, through some kind of someone I knew, like a mature student at the university, I got a job in a bookshop that was actually owned by Penguin Books. Oh, which wow. is obviously a British company. Yeah. In a wonderful department store, if anyone knows London, called Liberties. It's a beautiful. It's all... It looks like a Tudor mansion. It's a very, very gorgeous department store. Very famous. Like for
0: clothing department Uh,
1: store. Well, very famous for Liberty Clothing. It's very nice for William Blake, designed all the scarves. And and it's been going for a couple of hundred years, maybe more now. Um, But they had a bookshop in there that Penguin ran. and So I got a job in there and ended up finding out that I enjoyed publishing. So stayed in publishing for, well, from 86 to... 2007 so 20 something years I've in right. publishing which i loved uh, and i kind of edged my way up the hierarchy of publishing ended up doing very well i ended up getting a job with inside the publishing of penguin ended up becoming a kind of manager at penguin then ended up helping run a company i went to a couple of other companies Then ended up running a company for a while and then in 2006 um 2007, that company started to fail really badly, mm-hmm. and a lot, a lot of it was because I did stupid things as well. which oh. was quite humbling as well because I realized I'm not a great businessman, as my uh. wife will tell you when she looks at our accounts. Um, but I, um, and also my mother had died of leukemia a year or so before, or oh, 2004. Gosh. yeah. And so, um, this is one of the stories I tell. So, actually, about Two thousand six, two thousand. I think it was two thousand six. I may have got the date um, year wrong, but I was basically standing on the apart, uh, edge of my balcony in London. I have a beautiful apartment there, um, which I bought, you know, because I did well in publishing. Got this nice apartment that we still have, and my older brother is in there.
2: Oh, nice!
1: And um, basically, I was getting ready to throw myself off the balcony. I still remember this. So this is it's a it's a really kind of dark story, but it has a nice ending. So I was literally getting ready to jump off the balcony of this building. Oh my
2: gosh. In.
1: And um, I still remember this so the people in and again I was I tell this story at a lot of my food events. Food saved my life. So um the people in the apartment below opened the balcony opened their windows and they were cooking They were Lebanese family. So you know Lebanese family the food all kind of right it was like wafting. Yeah, it was just the best. And so I decided at that point and if the, if anyone ever asked me to write an autobiography this is what I'll call it. I said I was more hungry than suicidal. So I said, Well, I'm going to go and cook something. So I went inside to cook this dish. This is actually our family's signature dish. It's called LSD, Life Saving Dal, which is a red lentil dal, Bengali yeah. dal. Oh, cool. And I started making that. And then what happened, and this is it, did all changed. And while I was making this, you have to stir the lentils in the pot with your hand uh, to, to kind of toast them. And then you decant them and then you start making your dish. Oh. It's really lovely. It's, I've got the recipe on my website, and a lot of people make it. And you know, and uh, while I was doing that, I was looking at some of my recipe books and some of my notebooks, and I pulled out a notebook, and I'd done one of those uh, Tony Robbins courses. Oh, know, interesting. Was, yeah. You know, and I didn't. It was very American. Sure. And it's which it was not me because I'm too repressed to be doing. It. He. <laughs> I always joke when I talk <laughs> about it. I say everybody. Does those and it's just lots of people whooping and kind of. Yeah, it's very. Yeah, you've seen me on set. I don't do whooping. I just don't. I can't do all that stuff. We're gonna
0: get you to whoop at the end of this. It's why
1: (laughs) no, you trust me. You will never get me to whoop. You could burn me with a cigarette. It wouldn't happen. Um, I'm far too repressed. Um, But uh, but I'd written down all the things that I wanted to do when I turned forty. I did goals, and I thought, well, that was actually quite useful. So I'd run a marathon and. I'd had a suit made, and you know, every I think everyone should have something handmade for them, and it was beautiful. Um, and I can fit into it again, now, which is rather nice. Oh, I love um, that beautiful suit. Whole new goal I, accomplished. I know, it was fantastic. And then um, what I do? I had my teeth straightened. I always, again, I tell this joke a lot, but I go, I say they look like a uh, you know, British teeth. They look like an abandoned cemetery. But now they're all kind of <laughs> totally. They're all kind of fixed now. Um, what else? And and at the uh, bottom. Oh, yeah, I ran a marathon, and at the bottom. I'd written these four words, which just said "go everywhere, eat everything," and so I went. Oh, okay, and I sat and ate my meal, and then the next day I didn't obviously throw myself off the balcony. Yes, but I um, went in, and it's, a, it's. I always remember this: the cemetery. There's a, I l- overlook a very famous cemetery where oh I God. believe one of Jack the Ripper's victims were found. It's right in the heart of kind of London. Right. Um, William Blake is buried there. Daniel Defoe, wrote *Robinson Crusoe*, wow, is there. yeah. Uh, John Bunyan is there. Uh, I think one of the Wesley brothers who created Methodism is there. Anyway, a, I still remember this. But anyway, I didn't do that. And the next day I chatted to the woman who owned the company that I was helping to run. And she said, I, can't, I just can't do this. I'm not going to be here if I do this. And she was very understanding and we're still a very great friends.
2: Oh, that's and nice. And kind of
1: three, three weeks later, or whatever it was, I was on Bondi Beach, traveling around the world.
2: I love Bondi Beach.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, and I. So what happened was, I decided at that point I was just going to go. I had to just go and travel and eat, and that's what I was going to do. And then I ended up. Through various people I knew in publishing, but not publishers, just writers. Right. And I, I, they were going, "Oh, you should write a book." And I was like, "I really don't want to do anything with publishing anymore." This is—I'll come back. and get a job. Okay, you're like
0: that. I'm trying to escape.
1: Yeah, it was exactly what it was. I said, "I'll come back, get a job in a bar." And I always said, you know, I'll be the one standing on the street corner with a sign saying, "We'll drop trow for foie gras," or something, <laughs> you know. And um,
0: I can see it, Simon. I oh can yeah, see it.
1: yeah. I'd, I'd have <laughs> made good money. Um, but I ended up. Ironically enough, I ended up getting, I, I'd known, uh, I got to know Anthony Bourdain. Uh, and the oh reason I got gosh. to know him was through somewhere that's just closed. It's literally just stopped running. Chowhound, one of those food websites. It was the very first one. He yeah. was just closed after 25 years. And I, uh, in the very early days of Bourdain, we'd like bandied comments to each other. And he just published Kitchen Confidential. So he wasn't huge. He, he yeah. was very well known and very respected, but he wasn't what he became. But he became incredibly kind to me, and we ended up having drinks and going out and getting very drunk in London pubs until two o'clock in the morning.
0: I mean, that sounds like such a fun time. Like, oh. could, could I have been the third wheel on you, like, getting was, bombed together? That oh, would have been such a dream. We
1: had, I still remember it. And then we did one in New York as well at this rather, where the food isn't great, but it's great fun called Sammy's Romanian, which is an old uh, kind of Jewish steakhouse. And we ended up drinking, you know. Uh, vodka bottles in in blocks of ice and right. having fun I mean <laughs> Sounds fun. he was he was he was very kind to me and I was asking him I emailed him and I said well where should I go you know where I'm just traveling and, and he just goes you should write a book and I was like oh and he ended up sending me and it's on the front of my book my first book eat my globe a uh a, a what do you call it a quotation or an endorsement right and he said put this on your book proposal and then everyone will read it, and then he, in his own words, he goes, "Then your proposal better be any effing good." Yeah. Otherwise, I'll look bad. Right. And So <laughs> I, I said, "Well, I guess I." So I wrote a book proposal, sent it in through, uh, found an agent who I didn't know deliberately, because yeah, I didn't want to, it to not be someone have that. I knew. Yeah. And then I went off on my journey, and I was planning to go, and I did go. I think to in the end to about thirty-one countries in a year, so it almost killed me, but it was fun. And I was, you did this
0: by yourself y- when yeah, you yeah, left yeah. after
1: the. And I'd saved up, one of the things I always say is I'd saved up a lot of money because, you know, for lots of reasons, but I'd say, so I had money to do it and I could, but I knew I'd have to work when I came back and I had no idea what was going to happen. Right. So at the time, I think I was halfway up the Yangtze River at this point in some boat after after I'd been in Hong Kong and I'd been in Australia and so I was working my way around. How old were you at this time? Uh, Forty-three.
0: Wow. Okay. So
1: yeah, so it was kind of later in life. I mean, but I'm also very sh- young still to be like to be changed, totally changing my job. But I just yeah, I had to do it because otherwise I I t- I looked at it as time where, quite frankly, I didn't think I would have been here. So I sure. could have done what I liked. And I went to one of these kind of um, in the days of internet cafes, if anyone <laughs> remembers internet cafes. Yes,
0: I actually have only ever been to one in Australia, which is funny that you just well, said I, Bondi Beach. But
1: I've well, yeah. I mean, in those days, that's all you had. Yeah, there were no smartphones. There was none of this they kind of dusted off the one machine and i went online with the dial-up or you know back in the day and i got these emails from my agent saying that the the book had sold at auction in the uk and in the us for quite a lot of money and um i mean quite a lot of money and they said now you're I, you know, the, my agent says, "I guess you're an author now." I, I remember emailing Bourdain, going, "Thank you." And then I go, "Okay, I, sh- I should have been making some notes." And I started. You're like, "Shit!" Now I have pages to do. Well, oh, exactly. And I was taking pictures and all of that. I was doing that anyway. But I ended up now going from through China, going into Mongolia, riding the Trans-Siberian Express, going hunting in the north of Finland, going into oh Iceland, gosh. going to make whiskey in Scotland. Um, I mean, I ended up going all around, literally all around going up to tea plantations in Darjeeling, um, you know, going to the um, the door of no return in Senegal where 16 million people walked through to slavery. And so I, you know, I ended up doing all of this and wrote the book. And not only did that, happen, the book came out, it it got good reviews, did okay. I mean, it didn't change my life, but it changed my life. It didn't change my life, shall we say in terms of the sales of the book, but like it changed physically, my life. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, because on that journey, uh, I met my wife Sybil, who you know and you've I was going
0: to say, when did you meet Sybil? I love Sybil.
1: Yeah, she's the best. I mean, she really is the best. She's um, so I was in Brazil, uh, and one, that was one of the, my journeys. And I was in Salvador de Bahia, and Sybil, who's an LA girl, she was in Brazil on her own. She travels. She's a fearless traveler, and she travels around a lot. Well, she did then anyway, a lot on her own. And she was in Brazil, and she travelled all over Brazil on her own, kind of no fear. And I, the group, I, I, I wasn't with a group, but I met a group in my guest house, and there was a big party going on in Salvador in the old town, and it's you know one of those things with drum bands and blah blah blah. And I went up there, and she heard us speaking English, and I, I'd been and got a few carrot, you know, bags full of beer, and, sure. and The first thing she said to me was, "You know, can I have a beer?" And that was it. Were you like, can
0: I have your number? Yeah,
1: very much so. And I met her the next day and we went to the beach and then we had dinner and then that was it. And then she was going off somewhere else. And she had, and she'll tell you, the truth. she had no interest in me at all. (laughs) She's like, I just wanted
0: a beer, dude. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. She just wanted a beer. But then (laughs) when she found out that at the end of the journey, I was going to our family house in the south of Spain for three months to finish writing the book, that I became a lot more attractive, kind of travel goggles and Sybil
0: I hear you oh no
1: I'm telling you I'm, <laughs> smart woman I, I, I totally understand <laughs> she came down we met in Madrid then we came down to the place which was just outside of Malaga which we've just sold now and Sybil and I are still planning at some point that's where we're going to go and go back because yeah. it's my favorite part of the world anyway so we did that but your
0: I, family had a house there for yeah. a while
1: for a long time, forty years.
0: So that's like where your vacations
1: were. That's yeah, like it was the south of Spain is like the Florida of like sure. It's like it's like God's waiting room for Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. that's basically what happened. But we but I loved it down there and uh, I love that area of Spain. And anyway, we she came down. We just completely uh, got on and she and then I started coming over here to visit her in LA because I could write anywhere. Right. So I would come over here for like two months. And then I'd leave before my tourist visa, obviously, and then come back again after I'd been in the UK. Then I proposed. We got married. Uh, We're coming up to our 12th anniversary. We had a great outdoor wedding here in Tomaskel Canyon in the park. Oh, beautiful. It was was absolutely gorgeous. The weather was nice. Everything was beautifully done. I mean, it's just been... we've had, oh. you know, as you know we live in this tiny little apartment because we're never there. We're, I think it's, the, well it is the one she had as a law student yeah. 20 some, really. I
0: love that though. I'm like I would have kept, I would keep this apartment forever yeah. if I meant I was traveling the world all the time
1: So that's what we do. We've now been together to dozens and dozens of countries and that's what we even last year with, you know, pandemic we were in Mexico for something, we we're in Guatemala for something with a non-profit that I work for. We're planning to go to Bhutan. We're yeah, we're constantly traveling around the United States right yeah. now. Doing I do a huge number of events, which is really interesting. I do it a lot for nonprofits where I kind of go in and do a cooking demo and then I tell them a bit about my story. And um, it's been really fun. And we go to these cool. great places traveling around the United States. Um, and it's just been really, really blissful. But what also happened on that journey, sorry, I'm just ranting now. I so love I it. Like, but what also happened on that is that she, um, when I came to meet her, I still remember it was actually the day that I proposed. So it was a really a day that changed my life. I was I'd written an article for the Guardian and it was one of these kind of not quite clickbait because we didn't have click then. Right. It was it was for the Guardian website and it was all about like the best sandwiches in the world. Mm. And I wrote this like the five best sandwiches in the world and I'd just come back from eating them, so I knew about them. And this thing went viral. It was early days of things going viral, you know. So I uh, landed in New York, and my phone went, and it was the editor of the piece of the Guardian called uh, "Word of Mouth," as it I think it's still going. I think. Oh, cool. Anyway, but um, and they just said, "Oh, this has gone viral," and the BBC World Service have asked if you would go in and do an interview with them tomorrow. And I said, "Sure." So I had to go to Studio 13, where the BBC had an right. office, and I went in and talked about. Um, sandwiches and all of this. And my you know, wife, Sybil, was with me. And then afterwards, my my email came, and it was the man who is now my manager, still my manager, John. And he'd heard me, and he was looking to kind of build the food people in his thing. And he said, are you ever in LA? And could we talk about us representing you? All of this happened on the day, same that I proposed. Yeah. And so we've been together ever since. And then I still remember this, that maybe... Two months after that, or after, yeah, uh, or no, more, no, it would be longer after that because we were married. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, Oh, these people who do this show called The Next Iron Chef, and Iron Chef would like to meet you. Someone at Food Network, I think, had read the book and he promoted me. And so I had to go in for an interview with uh, the chaps who run Triage. So that's really how all of this, that's the reason kind of I'm here. It's so
0: interesting because it's like everyone, most people on our in our orbit on those shows are chefs or have been culinary school. I mean, whatever it is. And your 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 trajectory here is so interesting. I mean Well, it's completely different. And I think
1: sometimes, you know, I've come and I I, people call me a chef and I'm not, but if sometimes if it's easier for them to call me that because I cook professionally then I, I just go, it's, it's harder for me to explain why I'm not than for right. them to just Yeah, me. I was going
0: to say, what do you call yourself?
1: I'm a, I'm a, I'm a food writer uh, more than anything else. Are I'm, you a food write, critic? I, I am a food... I mean, if you ask me uh, right now, you know, I, I cook professionally. So I'm whatever that is. I'm a cook, professional cook, whatever you want to call that. I'm a food critic because, you know, I write food for Time Out for their food critics. I'm a food historian because I have the food podcast that I do with the Department of History at UCLA. Uh, and I guess I hate, I hate the phrase, but it's like television personality to the point where I, d- I think I'm kind of not that well known compared to some people, but well enough known that people notice me. So
0: you say you don't, you're not a chef, but what do you think a chef is if cooking professionally is something you do? Do you well, mean no. like you have
1: to go to culinary school? No, I don't think you need to go to culinary school because so many of the great chefs didn't and are home taught. And if you look at a lot of the great French chefs, they didn't go to culinary yeah. school or I mean, some did, but, um, so I don't think it's the culinary school. I think it's a chef by nature, by definition. In fact, is someone who spends time in a professional kitchen all the time, sure, or at least that's where they've they've educated, come through up him. and
0: like done. And yeah. So
1: that because chef comes from you know the leader. It means right. like jefe is jefe, the same yeah. word. Uh, so I haven't done that. Although now you know this weekend I was doing an event down at the Montage in Laguna Beach, and I was in the kitchen preparing oh, stuff and blah place. blah blah and. We were doing an event for 200 people. And so, with my chef, we kind of prep everything and we get everything ready. And we spent so I spend a lot of time in the kitchens now. So, I do many kind of hundreds of hours of work in the kitchen every year, but I don't run a restaurant. I don't.
0: Did you ever work in restaurants?
1: I've spent some time in there, yeah, and particularly on the service side, but not. And I have spent a lot of time now since this in there. So, if you look at the hours I've put in, probably, but I'm not what I don't have. Um, in in that sense, is if you look at Antonio or Brooke or all of these sure. amazing people, and I keep coming back to Antonio, but this could easily be the Voltaggio, or yeah. it could be Jet, or it could be you know any one of them because they are all astonishing. And I'm referring obviously to tournament, but because that's on right now, but they've all got s- such a playbook that they can sure. turn around and go, oh, I've got this one that when I worked at Bastide, or I've got this thing, and I could fit that into that. Well, what I've got in terms of um, my kind of knowledge is much more on the eating side. So what I can do and where I work, as particularly as a judge and particularly in this, is there is nothing they do that I haven't seen or on the whole that I haven't seen right. or I haven't been. If they tell me they're cooking from something from North Africa or they're cooking something from the Middle East or they're cooking something from Laos or they're cooking, right. then I've been there and I've seen it being cooked and I can go, yes, they are or no, they're not. Because if you've been to a hundred countries, right? You've pr- on not obviously I haven't been everywhere, but there's a lot of things where I can go. Yeah, they're saying it's North African, but throwing harissa on something isn't North African. It's just throwing harissa on something, right? So that's where I come from. Yeah, and I don't know. It's always one of those things. I chat to some of the chefs about, and they're people who are very polite to me, but I I work. I, I, I always have real imposter syndrome, like complete imposter syndrome. I'm like they're all sitting there going, why is why is he there? And I have it all the time to the point where it can almost be like you can't move. Yeah. And uh, so, again, I guess that's some kind of psychological thing that I've always had. But I've always suffered from that as a kid. I never thought I was good enough at school. I never thought I was good enough at university. I never thought I was good enough at publishing. I I was always feeling kind of I'm a
0: little uh, like that where I just I feel the same way. Every interview I do on our shows, I'll leave there. I'll leave the interview and be like, I don't think that was a good interview. Like, I, I know I didn't get it. Should I call them back in, whatever? And it takes like, one of one of the guys I work with is always like, you got it. I yeah. need you to chill out. If I get into post and you didn't get something, I will let you know. <laughs> and of course, I've never gotten that call. Not like I'm so good, but like you can always make it work not, and whatever. But oh. I always feel the same way. Where I'm like, why,
2: did, why am I the one doing that?
1: Well, I think what I try and do is to find the areas that I know where they. I can contribute. Sure. So um, obviously, the historical side of food is very important to me, which is why I d- I started doing this podcast. We just completed the eighth season. It's incredible. And so, how
0: many episodes of a podcast? Do you have? Uh
1: So we've done what I tend to do because I have to write them. So each uh, each season, I will tend to write five, which is like the history of. Well, this season we've got the history of rice, the history of rum. Oh, my God. The history of sous vide, um, the history of the microwave. And so I go and I write that and I have to do a lot of research. And then I write it. Uh, Sybil kind of edits it so it makes kind of sense because yeah. she's a you know, lawyer and she makes make sure that I've got my sites are right and right. Uh, um, And not that I would do this, but there are occasions where I'm writing and I look at something and she'll go, oh, this line and that line from where you've taken it from are probably too similar. Oh, got it. Just because it's not even, you're not even thinking about it. It's not even plagiarizing. You just, and she goes, let's just change that. Yeah, the things that, you know, a good editor should do. And then it goes to UCLA and they check it from a historical point of view, making sure that you're using words that you know when i first started 3 years ago i was going you know when man first did this and then like we kind of say humans first did this now but it was just oh, interesting. no but yeah. just because you know my mindset was 20 years so sure. i've been studying 30 years since i've been studying this stuff and so we've interviewed incredible people and then we so we do the interview ones and we do the kind of lecture ones sure. one. but writing the lecture ones is is about the equivalent in words of writing a book it's about hundred thousand words a season for that plus oh the interviews God.
0: and you so, have three books out right I and have three books. three books my
1: last one was a little while ago it was about four years ago so that was fed white and blue my first one was yeah. in my globe which was the name also the name of the podcast because I just like the name. yeah and that was about traveling around the world then I did eating for Britain which was trying to go and kind of kind of get rid of that notion which is a rather false notion now that British food is no good because it right. has become it's exceptional now, particularly in terms of ingredients, uh, ingredients in England are far better than in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I did that. And then uh, my last one was called Fed White and Blue. And that was one that I wrote because I was becoming an American citizen. And I said, well, before I do this, I want to go and figure out what an American citizen is. Right, And I did it through food. So I basically went online and said, and then by then we had Twitter and we had all of those things. And I went online and asked Americans to just come and share their food experiences with me to show me who they were right. as Americans. And so that what that means is you get, obviously, a real diverse mix. So I did everything from, I still remember spending a week in, or maybe less, in a, a Filipino restaurant in West Covina, learning how to cook Filipino food oh, wow. and then bringing in all my Filipino in-laws right. to go how to cook. Uh, so I could prove to them that I was, you know, worthy of yeah. being with their, yeah, their wonderful, uh, yeah, my wonderful. So wife. you
0: became an American citizen.
1: Yeah. So 2014, September the 17th, I still remember. But I did everything. I remember being invited to cook for um, Richard Petty's team. For the Daytona 500, and I sat next to Richard Petty Wild. to watch the Daytona 500. And I went with one of our a Food Network colleagues who was on for our uh, Food Network star, Michelle Ragussis. Yeah. So Michelle and I went down. I don't know how we got invited to this, but we ended up cooking for their team. Very the
0: American of yeah, you. Yeah, Very American
1: <laughs> uh, the Daytona. <laughs> Way to from.
0: lean in, Simon.
1: Daytona 500. I have to say, it was yeah. It, you soon realize, like it's all very exciting, and it begins. There's flyovers, and the anthem yeah, and all of this is wonderful. About three or four times round, you realize it's a lot less exciting and yeah. it's going to go on for hours. And I kind of snuck away and went off to find a bar somewhere. Um, but, you know, I I, I judged uh, – no, I hosted a kosher barbecue festival in Kansas City run by this wonderful guy called Rabbi Mendel who oh uh, is this bar called the Barbecue Rabbi and he's obsessed with barbecue, but he's also an Orthodox rabbi. And he's just the most incredible oh, guy. that's and wild. I, and I got to know that community, which is just a fant- obviously a fantastic community, but – really obsessed with barbecue and so we did you name it i did it i went off to alaska to kind of fish for salmon among the bears in yeah the wilds of alaska where you have to fly in on a plane to scare the bears off the beach before you go so fishing.
0: when you travel are you like let's say for for the when you first went and did your first travel when you left your job and you're like i'm gonna go travel and were you like hostile situation where you did you meet people and like go immerse yourself in their food like what was your were you hunting were you fishing like what were you doing it
1: was really and and this was the joy of it and something that's become the most important for me actually if we even bring it back to a kind of faith point of view and I, i i mean my faith is very roller coaster but i do consider myself you know a faithful person yeah um I kind of realized that going around the world was kind of not just go everywhere, eat everything, which was great, but it was also go everywhere, eat everything, meet everyone. And so everywhere I went, in some cases, it was just me on my own in a a rather grubby hostel, you know, doing the best I could. And because, I, you know, even though I had money, I wasn't didn't have a lot to spend. Right. So, you know, I'd be sometimes in a room with kind of, you know, groups of teenage German blokes, you know, in Australia or wherever. And then, um, which is interesting when you're forty something, because it's yeah. a very different world, but but really fun. Because again, it, when you kind of hang out with those young people, it's like someone kind of putting jumper cables on yeah. you know, on, onto a new battery, and I got lots of energy and I had real fun. Um, other times it was people inviting me going up to Finland and people uh, people who I knew in london i'd said well we've got a family there and why don't you go up and they have a hunting lodge and you can go hunting and do this oh that's cool yeah other times it was some people that i literally just met you know when i was in senegal and i met someone and uh, the next thing i know they're showing me around there they're not just uh ducker but they're taking me right. to their hometown outside and having incredible meals or often it's people i met i met people on the train going from Fes right. to Marrakesh, or, or, so or you name wherever i was going and and we met people, and there were some areas where it's just more difficult. Uh, it certainly was then to travel on your own. So China, if you're going on the trains and you're going on the Great uh, Trans-Siberian Express. So I joined a small group, but I wasn't going to do a big group. So it's a group of like six people. Oh, that's and cool. Then we just kind of that you can organize online, and we did that. And then some of it was just me doing, you know, India. So um, actually, a buyer from an uh, she uh, from a place called Zingerman's in Michigan, which is very famous. Um, grocery store and sandwich store is is an incredible place in Ann Arbor. Um, She was the buyer for tea and she was planning to do this trip to go to India but was worried about going on her own uh, because, you know, uh, India is uh, sometimes can be a little difficult for women travelling on their own to say the least. And I said, well, look, I'm planning to go to Darjeeling and going to see the first flush teas being picked and, you know, why don't we... Plan it together yeah. so we can get the rooms, and then I know people in India who can organize that, and and then we stayed on one of the tea plantations, so that was great. So we ended tea up tea plantation. Yeah, so it's uh, so it's the the first flush teas. Darjeeling is the great uh, place in India where you pick these beautiful, the first flush, the very first ones, and they're sprightly and really beautiful teas, and that's kind of what I obviously wow. I don't drink coffee, I drink tea, and so. Uh, you go up there and you you go out at four o'clock in the morning and it's all these extraordinary, uh, w- particularly women go and pick it because they have the very tiny hands and they they bring people in from Nepal because again oh, wow. they're smaller and they have these tiny hands and they pick oh, these not these days. man hands. Well, not I've got bananas. I for could fingers, never. So, <laughs> I could do it. so you're like picking them, and you so you're picking these incredible teas and and then you taste them. And what an experience! A, oh no, it was one of the best. And then you know so we did that and. So that was good because it was good for both of us to have someone there and it was incredible for her for her work and it was incredible for me for, uh, you know, for doing what I was doing. But then we did, you know, so I did all kinds of things in India, which was interesting, but going around Southeast Asia, which was new, going to the Philippines. I'd met Sybil at that point, but we weren't together. So I was going to her home country where she was born. Without um, her for the first time. Without, well, I I'd, I'd literally had met her, but we weren't kind of, we never. Oh, this was before I'd you finished, actually had. Yeah, before we'd ever kind of oh, met, wow. it, just met afterwards to write the book. Yeah. And, and so she's telling me about the Philippines. I was only in Manila for this point, but I've fallen in love with the Philippines. It's one of my favorite countries in the world from a hospitality point of view, from yeah. a f- food point of view. Filipino food is, I mean, and I'm saying this without any kind of, force from Sybil. Sure. It's one of my favorite cuisines anywhere on earth. I love the Filipino food with a passion. So that was great. Um, what
0: would you say? I know you can't cause it's like asking a mom to like pick her favorite child, but although my mom could do that, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you say is your most not favorite, I guess, but like your best memory or your an experience that you're just like, I will oh. never forget that. Like traveling like that will go down as
1: one th- of the tops. I think it's when you, when I think about that and I get asked, obviously you know, what's your favorite meal? Because I eat so, so sure. many of them. Um, it's not about the food, although the food has to be great. And, and I'm always looking, I hate a bad meal, but it's about the context of the people. So mm-hmm. um, I still remember couple of meals actually one in north africa i was going from i mentioned it going from marrakesh to fez yeah and i remember getting this eight hour journey. It's on the it's not a terribly kind of it's one of those old cabin trains that uh, like you see on harry potter you know where they're all sitting in those kind of cabins you know that what i, I mean i've then?
0: never seen harry potter Oh, well,
1: okay but if you've seen those old trains that you're not having like it's not a long, long train with lots of seats each yeah it's a compartment sure with like six seats in it so i was in one of those and I thought, well, this is going to be nice and quiet, and it's eight hours, and I'm just going to you know, listen to my Walkman in those, days, you know, <laughs> my Sony Walkman or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly the whole cabin fills up with this family that come in, and they've all got their suitcases, all completely nuts, and it which is fine, but, um, and then they start talking. We go on the journey, and they start talking to me, and they and they going, and they're asking me if I speak Arabic, and I don't know, obviously. And then they go, well, can you speak French? And I was like, you yeah, know, enough, because I did French at school and it was, you know, it's relatively good yeah. by comparison to my sure. Arabic anyway. And then they start going, well, have you, have you eaten? And I said, well, no, not really. I've got, yeah. And I'd mis-kind of planned my thing. So I had like half a peck of Pringles and a, and, a, <laughs> and a bottle of Diet Coke or something. That was it. Oh, how sad. Eight-hour journey. Oh, no, incredible. <laughs> pathetic.
0: You're like rationing out Pringles, and once was, you pop you can't stop.
1: But it was literally, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? For, but only and it was literally the half that I had from the day, night before oh where my I got that I had from another journey. I was like, "Oh, well this is going to be fun." And then they start I still remember this. They start bringing down suitcases and they start setting up this table almost with these suitcases on the thing and
0: putting a cloth
1: over it. And then they start getting out these bags that have got roast chicken in them and fish and all cheese and just like a picnic basically in this thing for the eight hours. And I was like, "Well, that's that's nice. I'm going to watch people have." And then they just started making me a plate. Of all this, like, incredible fish and salads. And oh, blah, my blah, blah,
2: gosh. And
1: pouring me, then pouring me, like, this mint tea that, like, that they had in thermoses yeah. and stuff. And so I ended up just chatting with them for the best part of eight hours. I, I think I still follow most of them on Facebook. Oh, or that's whatever. so cool. The family. And that's what happens, that the best meals... And the food was delicious, Yeah, but it we're not talking about, you know.
0: Some Michelin restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're yeah.
1: talking about roast fish and stuff they may have picked up at the market and some cheeses and some, you know, some olives and all the things that you associate with North African food. And me just going, wow. And they, they didn't need to do that because right. I, I'm nothing to them. And what you find, and I think this is really important, and I say this all the time, yeah, we live in a very polarized society right now, particularly mm-hmm. here in the United States. You know, everyone kind of hate, finds it a reason to hate each other, which I I just don't get. Right. But what they what food does is it can bring you together, and that's what I do try. Yeah, now. that's one of the key things for me. So, um, I always say you can't have an argument with someone with a mouthful of ribs. <laughs> that's know? true. And and I, I just think it's the it's the reality so i can i try and put myself in circumstances where it's people who i don't know i don't know you know their their you know race may be different their politics may be different their religion may be different right. all the things that we find to find reason to be afraid of someone right and yet what i find is once food is involved then I'm not saying we'll always agree with each other. Right, you know, but you I, take
0: I, them out of that box.
1: Well, you you understand that they're human beings rather than monsters who you need to be afraid right. of, which is what we, we try and create, particularly if you watch the news. And I go, you know, I've, I've spent time going through the Middle East, and I've spent time in Israel, and I've spent time in, um, you know, throughout Southeast Asia and all over now that we go in, in Africa, going to Tanzania, going to... And what happens is once you start having the food, Nobody has ever thrown me out of a restaurant anywhere in the world for coming in and not knowing how to order. You just kind of point. Or right. going, I'll, have, I'll have some of that. And they go, oh, okay, then, and bring it. And so food is, is a great opener for that. And so one of the things that I do a lot, and I do these donor dinners that I do for a lot of the nonprofits, I'll go into someone's houses and we'll cook for maybe 20 or 30 people. And the idea is that we try and bring people together through that that yeah. are maybe of different groups or, you know, whatever it is, just so we're trying to do something different. So that's an area that I like to do as well. Um, and I think one of the things I think about with the chefs that I know and the ones that I really respect, they all have that mindset that food is is not just about their technical ability, of which many of them are, are exceptional, Right. but it's about why they do it. Yeah. Their, their concept of why they cook is as important to them as their, their ability to cook. Yeah. And I think when you see that... I, I, I'll i give you a perfect example is, is Michael Voltaggio. Michael Voltaggio is technically just one of the most exceptional cooks insane. I've ever met. It's insane. And I've, I've met a lot of exceptional cooks around the world, whether it's you know, France or Italy or Spain or wherever I've met. But he's he is exceptional and his thought processes are, are kind of... I don't even understand half the time. Yeah. But if you sit and talk with Michael, he's one of the most humble people. And also it's the concept of why he's cooking that matters to him. Right. It's wh- who's eating it, what it is. And there are a lot of people who do, or not do his kind of food, but do that very kind of thoughtful sure. food that don't necessarily have that. They put a lot of thought into their creativity, but they're not talking about why, that in the end there's a person right. there. And so he's a perfect example of the chefs that I kind of absolutely adore. Yeah. And yet, yeah, we, we I'm sure we could have arguments about food, but that's fine. But right. it's about why he does what he does.
0: Yeah. What made you such like a adventurous? I'm assuming when you're out in all these different countries with different people trying their cuisine, trying to immerse yourself like you're trying all kinds of stuff. What do you think made you such a fearless Um,
1: experimenter of food? Well, first of all, I think we have to realize that it's not you're not necessarily experimenting because there are cultures that are eating these things by, you know, As part of their natural kind of culture, uh, their natural culture. So it might be unusual to us, but then I always say, you know, I remember someone saying to me, oh, well, you know, you get to a country and they'll have, eat snake, or you'll get to a country and they'll eat whatever, you know. And I go, yeah, and then some poor bugger has to come over here and eat a Twinkie, and I know which one I'd rather be. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm not going to eat. That's so true. Because those things are disgusting. Uh, And so I think, first of all, it's going in with an open mind, and no one's serving you food. To kind of shock you. Right. In, in, you know, unless you're doing something that is... Shocking. for there Yeah, to shock you. Um, but this is part of their culture. So it doesn't mean you're going to like everything. You know, there's you know some things of that I've eaten that I never want to eat again for lots of reasons. You know, there are, you know, some animals that we don't want to eat and quite right too. Sure. Uh, and, you know, I don't need to go into that argument because we're, we're battling against that now. Right. But there are some things that people go... Oh well, it's the brain of this or the heart of this, and I go it's, and just try it. It's delicious, and in some cases, absolutely fantastic. Um, I think we've become very spoiled here in the U.S. because we, you know, relatively we're you know, we're, we're not even relatively we're a very very wealthy country, uh, even to the point of some of the poorer people here are going to be far better off than they might be in another country. Right. And so we've we've allowed ourselves to become very kind of faddish about our food. We've we've got the wealth to become very uh, silly about our food and mm-hmm. i'm gonna just do this or i'm not going to eat for can you uh for x number of days and fast i'm not going to do this or can. I, like I said can you imagine in some places where you know they're struggling and they're beginning you know new countries that are developing more and they're going to talk about fasting i mean right. you know it's i see i right. see people who are starving all the time so i get slightly angry about that and also you know the oh well if it's not chicken breast or it's not filet mignon, then I'm not going to eat it. Or if it's got bone in it, I'm not going to eat it. And I just go, we, 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 allow, we, we allow ourselves to be ridiculous about food in right. this country, which a lot of other countries don't have the, either don't have the history of or don't have the kind of allowance to do. Now. Right. So I, I think that's one of the things that traveling around the world, you see that there's you know, people around the world literally working hours and hours to yeah. get X amount of rice and X amount of protein to feed their family. And they don't have that kind of idiocy that we have right. with food. And so that's one of the other areas. And by telling my stories, I'm not showing people up in the, those countries because they're just living their lives. They're great people. But I'm just saying we should look to other countries as much as possible because it shows us that sometimes we could be a bit ridiculous yeah. with food.
0: Have you, I'm sure you have, but have you traveled to like the South, Alabama, Louisiana? Oh, yeah.
1: I, I love that area. Yeah. So, um, and that that again, you know, particularly right now, it's very easy from both sides. I'm a very, very democratic person, you know, in every sense of the word. Um, and so it's very easy from our side of it to kind of make fun of the South and make fun of what, you know, all those things that we do. Sure. Just as it is for them to make fun of the libs and all of that. Yeah. And I don't even want to go into the politics. But what I find is when I go down there, particularly when it's food, I've got so many friends who are chefs down there and I go and hang out with them. And trust me, their politics is very different right. from mine. And their backgrounds are very different from mine. And yet I can go and sit at a table with 20 people and drink some, you know, alcohol that came from wherever. Right. And and eat some food that, you know, they've hunted and we have a great time. Now, yeah. again, what it means is we're not always going to agree politically, but we don't disagree to the point where we can't sit down at a table and have, together. right? And I think that notion and it, this is where I come back to it um, for kind of coming back to. My Anglican kind of dreams of uh, earlier being a priest. If I if I had if and I, I'm I wouldn't claim to have the arrogance to claim it, but if I had a ministry of a sort now, I think it's that that I go around and cook for people. Yeah, and then by doing that, we are hopefully c- we can come closer together. Right. Now, I'm not claiming that I can do it all by myself, but but at least I can do what I can. Yeah. And so well, you can I, start
0: uh, relating to people when it comes to food that can then bridge the gap. Absolutely.
1: And, yeah. and I think if you just go, you know, as I, and I, I do have those rules in some cases where I go, let's let's not talk religion. It's what, it's the rule, the great rule of the English pub. You don't talk religion. You don't talk politics. Otherwise, you get thrown out. Yeah. And that is the rule of the English pub.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I was brought up in many English pubs. And yeah. so I kind of have that rule now. I so said, let's not talk about that stuff. Let's talk yeah. about the stuff that we can agree on. Let's talk about. And that's the other thing. When you travel around the world, you realize that, you know, mums and dads still worry about feeding their kids. You know, boys and girls still wonder if boys and girls will like them. You right. Know, you know, or their friends. And yeah. All those things. It doesn't matter where you are. Those things are universal so once you start getting in, in into that uh, understanding right Then you realize that they're all just human beings we're exactly. just people and that's kind of really important for me yeah. more than anything and so I've been fortunate enough to see that and been invited into homes in you know all, literally all over the world right and i think that's given me a background in food that i think maybe that's where i can contribute i'm certainly not going to claim to be as good a chef as all of the other people and i'll always give a try when i go and do that but right. where i can what i can do is go you know i've seen this i've seen this world. i've seen yeah. these people i've eaten this food
0: so how many countries have you been to
1: uh, i don't the honest answer is i don't know i just did a um there's this thing called the century travelers Club, where you have to have gone to 100 countries and you have to fill in this form and they asked me if I would do their, like, keynote speech. I did that. So you have oh to gosh. have been to one who did that. Yeah. And so I just did that fairly recently. So I'm guessing I'll, by their standards, I've done over 100 now. But but then it's a change of whether this is a country. I have arguments with Sybil about it all the time. So... Do I say England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland? That's four. And she goes, "No, that's one. It's Great Britain." I go, "No, there are four countries." I said, "You go." Oh, and- I would say that's four too. I said, "You go and tell someone in Wales that they're in the same country as England, and, right. and see where that gets you, because you won't. You know, yeah, you never play the piano again." <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I mean, here's the thing: is I we just keep traveling, and this is our our. Uh, and I've actually turned down. I still remember. You know, Sybil uh, used to be, she is a lawyer. She's a practicing, you know, registered lawyer. But then what happened, and she does, you know, she's doing some legal work for someone now. But then what happened is about six years ago seven years ago she or maybe more she just was like you're traveling around the world and i'd just come back i think from doing a show in thailand where they did the finale in thailand it was called extreme chef i still remember this oh cool and it was fantastic and i come back and she's been in the office for two weeks and i'd been out there filming she's like this isn't fair and i go no it isn't so uh, basically she quit that and now she runs my company and we travel around the world together which you know is is just bliss, so we go and if I get an event she comes with me to my events that's part of my kind of agreement with everyone and now
0: are you looking to adopt a 38 year old <laughs> or <laughs> I'm a fun time simon it is
1: <laughs> it is one of those things that we just go our our plan is you know uh, we live a very uh, a very kind of what's the word I'm looking for we we don't spend a great deal we apart from on food which we love but we you know, we drive around in our battered old corolla that's i think I don't know. I think it's older than our marriage. I love y'all. If not, it's probably close to it. Um, And we don't care. I mean, it's like when the, you know, I'll stay in any hotel. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't love when we go and have experience something. People are kind enough to show us some kind of luxury and stuff. Of course we do because we're just, but we just travel. We book a little Airbnb in wherever we are in Cambodia. Sure. and And we just have fun. And those moments... Yeah, when I talk about it, I go, those moments will be as important to me as anything else in my life. So I'm incredibly grateful for Food Network. I love it. And I love the people as well. You know, uh, 99% of the people I meet, because it's it's like high school, 99% of the people are phenomenal, you know, and great. And there are some who I don't know as well and all of that. But I have a great time. Uh, you know, so I, like I said, I hope they keep asking me to do stuff.
0: I always ask people like, what are they, what are you loving most about your life right now? And it sounds like you, I mean, you basically just answered it that your office is the globe with your wife. And I mean, what are you loving most about your life right now?
1: I, I mean, one of the nicest things is I absolutely love being with my wife as much as I ever did. And from the day I first met her. So that's always, that's always a nice thing because and I, I and I suspect it's because we've always been the same. We kind of we we're very bicker. If you've seen me and Sid, we bicker all the time, and it's just great because people are like never quite sure whether we're gonna ever row. <laughs> we've never had a row yet in twelve years. We just kind of like argue about stuff. Yeah. Um. So we we have the best time. We plan that, and so from that point of view, I'm just in a place that I never thought I'd be, fifteen years ago. That you know when I thought I was going to jump off a balcony or something, right? Or Warner kill myself.
0: Which have you ever told the people that were underneath your apartment that their never food saved your life? I never got to meet them, so
1: no, what happened was and I um, it, it, the apartment we have is, uh, is on this great building, but a lot of it's rented out to banks for short periods, so oh. if, if this, these people were coming on to work at the Bank of Lebanon or whatever, because sure. it's right in the city of London, and so they disappeared for, yeah, they weren't there terribly long and so by the time kind of all of this got sorted, they'd gone so I never got to thank them for what they did if, uh, you know, but they, you know, they, they're the reason I'm here now yeah. because they were cooking such amazing food. And um, but right now I'm having just the most enjoyable time. Yeah. And it doesn't mean I don't have problems like anybody else. You sure. know, like we talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about all these kind of things, that, mm-hmm. uh, all these things that kind of snuffle away at us, our ankles, um, because we all have them. But right now, things are are pretty fun. And uh, we're traveling again. We're beginning to get out after the pandemic. What are you... So
0: is there anything... I mean, I know you never imagined this would be your life. Certainly all those years ago when you were like, I got to just get out of here. So what are you still striving for? Is there anything still on the bucket list?
1: Oh, I I mean, there's the physical bucket list of doing, going to more places. So there's places in... Uh, southern africa sub-saharan africa so countries that i just want to go yeah. while it's safe and that's very important to me to see as much of the world as possible and meet as many of the people as possible as i go through i think is very important um what i would love to do and this is a kind of my tv dream mm. is and um, is there I want to bring over my historical knowledge of food and show people how food is incredibly important from what we eat. So, for for example, I've just been writing the history of rice and we think rice. Well, that's it. It's rice. Right. But what we don't realize is that, you know, uh, rice was one of the reasons that nearly a quarter of the people from Africa were brought over as slaves because they grew, they were experts in growing rice in South Carolina. So nearly, I believe, nearly a quarter of the people. So it absolutely empowered slavery in the United States. And we're thinking about rice. or You think about, you know, and then on a less dark one than that, but very, you know, that if you just stays in your heart the whole time, because something that we take for granted so much, we need to go back and understand What this ingredient, South Carolina produced more rice than anywhere in the world at one point, and it was sold all over the world. And it was a rice from Africa. It was African rice. Oh, interesting. And and just fascinating. And just think of the the dark history of people who threw, I mean, like I said, in Senegal, seeing people uh, who had thrown themselves into the water where they had sharks to stop them escaping. And they said, well, I'd rather die by the sharks than by slavery. So they threw the, so the millions of people and thousands of people who've been you know gone through this life. Right. And so what I want to do, I'm writing about the history of rum. And you go well, uh, um, uh, the rum tax in America was actually more important than the tea tax in terms of the American Revolution because New England produced most of the rum in the world at that point. Oh wow. So in New England, of all places, from molasses. So uh, what I want to do, my dream is to try and do a show a bit like my podcast. To try and explain to people how some things that we take very simply or, um, or have an incredible importance in our life and the history of them, you know, and it can be fun in some places. I, I've just been talking to people about the history of the fork. And you're going, it's a fork, you know. Was, but when the fork was first brought over, because oh, it wasn't, um, it was um, you didn't have it in Europe. Everyone had a knife and they had their hands. Um, when the fork came over from Byzantium in like 14 something or other, it may have been slightly earlier. It was considered the devil's implement. This woman used it at a we- her wedding in Italy when she married the Duke of whatever right. and, and all the priests said she's gonna she's gonna die and because she's not using her hands that God gave her and she's got this devil's implement because it looked like a pitchfork and she's and then she died of the plague. And they're all like and they're writing to the Pope and the Pope is going, Oh well she used a fork and she deserved to die of plague and you oh just go, gosh. It's a fork. So the history of something again as simple as a fork is going to change. And you yeah, go,
0: that's wild.
1: And you go through and you follow that up to ha- why, if you follow the history of the fork, sorry, I'm just ranting now, but it's just fun. If you go up to why Americans eat one way, you know, you in America, this is not good for a podcast, but people will know what I mean. But in America, you cut the food, right. put the knife down, move the fork to your uh, right hand or your left hand, depending on where, way, and then you use that to scoop. Whereas in Europe, we have the knife and fork we cut push stuff onto the back of the fork Right, And, and that's because when uh, American colonists came over to the United States, they were following the very early French use of the knife and fork, where you had a, more of a dagger. So you cut things, put that down, and then use the fork to scoop it. By the time the new French thing came in in the 1700s, that was where the knives were rounded. And so you would use them to push it onto oh, the fork. And, it, and so... Even the way you eat in the United States has something to do with the fork. I mean, it's just an incredible yeah. history. So I love just as you can tell, I love this stuff. Yeah. I could carry on about it all night. So who gave us the spork? Uh, the, the spork was actually invented in something like nineteen thirty-four. <laughs> oh, really? I thought you were going to say Taco Bell. No, it wasn't. No, <laughs> heavens no. Um, um, but I uh, but it, so it was yeah something like nineteen thirty-four, and um, uh, someone created it at a fast food. It was a fast food place. I have I have written about it in the thing. But anyway, so wow. I just I just love talking about this stuff because we we don't know enough about it and it changes the way that you look at food. You know, you can cook with all kinds of ingredients, but you go, But did you know? Right. I, I think I even said it to a guy in one of the tournament of champions, talked about broccolini. I okay, go it was invented by the Japanese in nineteen seventy six and yet we think it's like this thing that we've had forever. Right. You go, the Japanese invented it and it's a mixture of broccoli and something else and uh, they created it cuz it was easier to, it, it was more kind yeah. of tender yeah.
0: so i know your mom had passed but what what did your dad end up thinking about your career how you like pivoted and then this became this fun <laughs> interesting food historian food critic like what did he think of he about was
1: this? he was i have to say he was very proud um he was uh, he's proud of everybody i mean yeah. so he i mean he was a he was quite when we were young he was quite a kind of stern quite severe kind of indian surgeon doctor you know and then gradually, interesting enough, he became a lot more kind of gentle and certainly towards the last kind of fifteen or so years of his life, particularly maybe after my mother died, but he was always yeah. very kind, and he would just watch all the shows on you know YouTube or whatever he could find uh-huh. in England, and he would you know I would send him pictures, and I still remember the only gift he ever wanted from me ever ever I went back, and he was like me, liked his alcohol and so I would make him his only Christmas gift. I would have to make him a martini, a proper martini. Oh, and that's I've adorable. Got make, I actually have a picture on my Instagram of me with him. The last time I made him a martini, he was probably in his mid 80s. And it's just him sitting there with this very strong martini, which he loved. Oh. And that was like, and so all again, all of our food was all about, all of our conversations, everything was all about food yeah. and what we're going to eat and what we're going to do. So it's still, like I said, it's still the same. My, yeah. my wife, now I, we right now <laughs> because she's in the middle of doing some work for someone. I was like, lunch is the big meal, so I made a lunch, left it, and then you know, had yeah. to come out and do my stuff. But it's all about what are we going to eat tomorrow? What's your suggestions for the yeah. week that I'm cooking for? Her? I cook and clean, and she does the taxes. And, right. Uh, hey, was,
0: that's not a bad gig. How no, would... no,
1: it's uh, we we just have, like I said, we have a a very fun life. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that things aren't always uh, yeah. uh, are perfect because life just ain't like that.
0: So what do you think about my older sister is going to London for the first time, which is wild to me because of how much she does imitate the British accent and
1: love it so much. She probably shouldn't do that when she's there. She will not
0: do that there. Um, But I was telling her my favorite place is to get Indian food in London. Which I don't know if you're going to be like, oh, Lindsay, that's so lame no, well, or not. But I'd be Dishoom, well, no, Dishoom in Shoreditch is like my favorite Dishoom, place.
1: Well, I live very close to there. Oh, my apartment is very close to there. Dishoom is fantastic.
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm like, you have to go here. You have to go to the one in Shoreditch. Like, that's well, the that best Well, that was the one. original
1: one, I believe. And now the other thing that I will say is there's one that I go to and I've been going to forever and ever. And it's actually a Pakistani restaurant called okay. Tayab's. T A Y Y A B S. Okay. uh, Famous for their lamb chops, and funnily enough, when I was chatting with Adam Richmond about places in London, when we were I was interviewing him, he mentioned that. I go, oh well, the pal, the guy who owns it, Wazim, is um, one of my pals, and she should definitely go there. This guy serves like, it's huge now. They've taken over half the street, but they serve like these incredible tandoori lamb chops that they that they do like two thousand of a night or something crazy because they serve so they're so well known for them. So that's one of them. But okay. uh, but also go to some of the um, higher end. One of the things that you get in India, obviously with Indian food, is you're getting such a mixture across Indian food because obviously Indian food is 27 states and right. all the states are different. And we have all of those in India because of the empire. And so the thing I would say is you have to go to a number. You have to go to a place like Tayab, which is much more kind of blue collar and really fun. And go to somewhere like Dishun, where I think just does an amazing job. Um, go to some of the high-end Places like, I think it's Jim Gymkhana, there's another. Yeah, places that have got Michelin stars because they're doing something at a different level. Okay, cool. And the other thing to do is to go to what uh, I call BIR, which is British Indian restaurants. So that's the equivalent of going to an old-school Italian-American place. Right. Like, so what I do is I count that as a totally different cuisine. So the so Bangladeshis who came to India, I, again, I wrote History of Curry, but Bangladeshis who come to came to India after the Second World War um, they created restaurants, uh, Indian restaurants, where they served almost this kind of pantomime of food. Like They would serve these dishes that were created in England primarily for the English community, but they're of Indian roots. Right. So just like you would have in Italian-American food, you'd have chicken cacciatore or chicken palm that you would never see in Italy. Right. But they're really amazing if they're made well. And that's where you get chicken tikka masala, which is a British dish so people don't realize oh, they didn't realize that. no so chicken tikka masala uh, was created in glasgow and oh, I, cool. I and actually that's what i talked to alton about on good eats it was created in glasgow by a pakistani gentleman who i went to go and meet and um, he claimed that he'd invented it and, yeah. and, and ch- so you don't get chicken tikka masala in india they have no idea what it is right. it, but it's now the british national dish it was actually made officially the british national dish oh cool and so created so when you go and have it now all the indian restaurants that of the kind of BIR style, the British Indian restaurant style, will all have right. uh, chicken tikka masala. But if you go to Dishoom, they won't have chicken tikka masala on the menu. Yeah, They might have butter chicken, which is a kind of Indian yes. cousin. you might have something that's got a bit more, is closer to what you'll find in India.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, well, I'll give her your recs.
1: Anytime. And, and London right now, I would say, I think London is probably... Above New York in my eating list right now. It's an incredible eating city right now. now that certainly wasn't the case when I moved down there in 1980. Right. Blah blah blah. whatever it was, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, it certainly wasn't the case. But now, it's. I think London is is really remarkable because yeah. we have. Uh, London's the most cosmopolitan city in the world. I love know? it so much. And I and I miss it. I, I will. You know, LA has its moments, um, but. To me, London is... I mean, it's London. To me, London and New York are kind of the cities that yeah. I I gravitate towards. Yeah. That whole nylon thing that they talk about because they're probably more similar to each other than they are. And if you walk around London and you could walk... I was thinking today there was something... I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about why even under the current government in England, who I don't particularly like, but they've still decided that all museums are going to be free, and they always yeah, are. Yeah, I love that. Like every museum every yeah. is completely free because they say it's it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. Yeah. I still want to, even though I love being an American citizen, I do, I adore being an American citizen, but I still like being part of a country where you go... Anywhere that thinks museums are a necessity is a country I want to be part of. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And that's true of
1: everything. So you know you can go to the British Library, which I do every time I'm there, and I'll go and have a look at. um, They have all of the the, uh, envelopes and pieces of paper that all the Beatles uh, lyrics were written on that Paul McCartney wrote, and he he donated them all, and so did John Lennon, and so on. And you can go and look at all the Beatles lyrics that they wrote down, and then at the same time. You can go into another room and see the Magna Carta and you go into another room and see the oldest copy of Shakespeare. And where is this? This is the British Library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, which is down by King's Cross Station. Yeah. But just going that I can go, I'm bored today. Um, I'm going to go and look at the Beatles lyrics or I'm going to, to me, yeah. that's one of the things that I miss, that kind of cultural side. Yeah, for sure. For all the you know pleasures of living in LA, I do miss that, that I could just go, let's go and do this. Yeah. Well, let's get on a boat down the river to Greenwich, or let's go yeah. to wherever.
0: I know I had the, I mean, I've only been once, but I had the best time in London. I think it's spectacular. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, it's in my heart. I still say I live in LA, but London is home. Yeah, and and that's not to be critical of anywhere else. I, like I said, sure. people me not loving being an American citizen, but it, it just is. I was there yeah. for thirty something years, and I, I, you know, when I and when I get home to London. I still immediately feel like I'm putting on the most comfortable pair of slippers and I walk out of my apartment and I, I'm five minutes walk from yeah. the River Thames and I'm, you know, 10 minutes walk from the Tower of London and all of these things that just are part of my life. Yeah,
0: nostalgic. Yeah.
1: And so I'm, I miss that. But right now I need to be here.
0: Yeah. All right, Simon, this is the quick fire five.
1: Oh gosh, let me take some water before I say. I hope you're getting what you like. Or do
0: you want a shot? No, I'm getting. No, no,
1: no. so tra- ge- yes, of course. I drank so much at the weekend when I was doing an event. Uh, after my event, I don't drink beforehand, but afterwards, I rather enjoyed myself. So I'm still recovering.
0: <laughs> with everything, Simon is that yeah. I know. <laughs> no, Susan's. Not with Simon. Oh, oh, sorry, That's with me. Box. No, I'm getting. <laughs> Susan's my like barometer. Sometimes <laughs> so I'll be like in the middle of a podcast, and I'm so in it that I'm like. I don't what what house going, and I'll look over, and she's either like, or she's kind of laughing, or if I ever hear her laugh, I'm like, this is good.
1: Well, I just rant when I do these things, so it's uh, so forgive me if I'm just I no, don't know I do you, the
0: same, and then I'm like thinking about, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's gonna be a have lot to, ed- to edit, right, and, and then, what, what am I? I that's you know, why I have
1: an editor who does my editor April, who does all of ours. So. Yeah,
0: well, editor right here.
1: <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> but
0: she's fascinated, so it's fine.
1: It's um, hard. work well, okay. What are these? What are these five questions? I'm rather frightened now. Quick fire five. Ooh, I just want your quick.
0: first, your first answer. Just whatever comes to mind. Okay. Last meal before you die.
1: Fish and chips.
0: Nice. What a great answer. Because I love that. Okay. Favorite city? I might just open it up for you, and say country.
1: No, but, f- f- I could say. Okay. They're, Favorite they're,
0: city to eat your way through.
1: Madrid, easily. No, there's no better eating city anywhere on the face of God's earth. There just isn't.
0: Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. Okay. If you weren't in this profession, and I for you I have to change it because if you weren't in publishing and you weren't a food critic, food reviewer, TV <laughs> personality, what
1: would you be doing? I would um, – I still have dreams about being an Anglican priest. I always think I would um, – a bit like – If you ever watch PBS, like Midsummer Murders, I always think I'd be like in church in the morning on a Sunday and then solving mysteries at night in some quaint sort of medieval English village. Simon,
0: I I really see that for you. Oh,
1: I think it would (laughs) be. I'd be great. Father Simon. And you'd have a TV series. Father Simon Investigates or something. I'd be brilliant. Oh, my God! Like Tom Bosley did, but like with a British accent.
0: I'm loving this. My new favorite TV show. (laughs) Um, Okay. Favorite cocktail,
1: wine, or beverage? Uh, Gin Martini, straight up with a twist. I mean there's no that is the hardest it's the easiest cocktail to make and the hardest one to make well by definition it must be gin yeah Uh, and uh, you should never put olives in a martini that's just disgusting so it's a twist with a lemon twist ice cold not too much vermouth and in fact that's one of the in my rider for every event I have every one the thing is the moment I come off stage the beverage director at the hotel has to have someone deliver me a martini backstage and that's the only the only rider I ever asked for
0: Oh my God, Simon! I get and if you
1: it. look on my Instagram, you'll see I have all these pictures. Of and it's the martini, just me with a martini, or looking at a martini, and it just says underneath "and relax." <laughs> it's the greatest drink in the world, I love I've got, that. and I've got. I, I know this is supposed to be quick fire, but I've got both Alton Brown and Jeffrey Zakarian now drinking them with a twist after having olives because I made so much fun of them for putting the yeah. olives in them. It's purely a delivery system for alcohol. Right. There's no fruit, there's nowhere <laughs> totally. to kind of and, and for me that just that short, sharp shock of like an ice cold gin martini is one of the if you have the right ones. So yeah. Ford's gin, Plymouth gin, beefita gin, the right the right gins. Just fantastic. There is nothing better in the world.
0: You may have just sold me. I may go get a Martini Go and give one a this. try.
1: <laughs> Actually, they do They do make a decent one, and they have Ford's Gin or Plymouth at uh, Birdie G. So just go and get one oh, with a well, twist. Well, you know that's my favorite. So get it get it made. And just not shake, and it should always be stirred. Okay. Because it's all alcohol, so there's nothing to emulsify. So no shaking. Yeah, so why getting... shake it? Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. The fifth. Do you have any tattoos? No. Would you ever get one? No.
1: I, I honestly, and this is not a criticism because I know plenty of people in, sure. in our business that
0: yeah.
1: are like, you know, Lydia, the tattoo lady, but, <laughs> um, and that's, and that's all of which is fine because it's, you know, it's people's bodies, but no, yeah. not, not putting no tattoo on me anywhere.
0: I mean, I hear you. Well, Simon, not only are you just a joy all the time, <laughs> but you have just like blown my mind with so many things in this podcast oh, well, I hope that so. I didn't know, but also like the history behind things, certain parts of your life I didn't know about. I mean, I'm just so it's, fortunate it's that you got odd, to come up um,
1: I think sometimes I was I tell Guy my stories and I think he thinks I'm just making it up because <laughs> I used to go to all these bands and I used to go and see all these concerts and like famous people like, or younger people like Joy Division and stuff. And he was like, I just, I think he thinks I'm making it all up.
0: So what was, when you say that now, I'm like, oh God, I can't wrap this up yet. So in London, were you like party guy?
1: I was never a party guy. No, I was a religious, I was a theolog, a religious student. Well, I but I would, you know, I'd go and have a few beers and I'd go to, but I I was never one for going to big parties, but I would always go to gigs. I would always go to see, you know, and I was in a very good time then because it was the, the real heyday of the clash and I'd go and see anything. So, you know, go and see, I remember going to see kind of Deaf Leopard in a pub in Sheffield. That's where they're from. And oh there was like God. 20 people in there. Right. And I've got a, a single that they they sold at the thing that I've got them all to sign. And, you know, when one of them had his right hand as well, the drummer. And so, I mean, I used to go and do all of that as well, but it was just, it's a different, you know, it's, I've lived, well, I'm 58, so I've lived plenty of lifetimes.
0: You lived, yeah. I feel like you've had a lot of life, a and lot of so, experiences. And so
1: I, that's why I think I'm quite sanguine about um, not being competitive and not running around because I've done plenty, and you know God's been very good to yeah. me. I, th- I genuinely think I've been very blessed.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, you certainly have. It's been so awesome having you on. Thank well, you thank so you. much. Thank
1: you for inviting me. I, I love it. It was nice to get out of the house again. Yes. Wow. Table
0: five, thanks you. This was fascinating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> very great pleasure. Awesome just don't do the accent
0: (laughs) I will never So hopefully after listening to the pod, you see what I mean about how fascinating Simon is. You can find him across socials at Simon Majumdar. You can check him out on Food Network, on multiple different shows, and you can listen to his podcast, Eat My Globe, wherever you listen to your podcast. And look him up. He has tons of books out and he's just the coolest. I think he's so fun. And I'm so glad that he came on to Table 5. Thanks for listening, y'all.